Book Two, Chapter Nine of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Arachne by George Ebers. Translated by Mary J. Safford. Book Two, Chapter Nine. The sculptor's head was burning feverishly when he entered the vehicle. He had never imagined that the consequences of his explanation would be so terrible. During the drive, by no means a long one, to the great harbour, he strove to collect his thoughts. Groaning aloud, he covered his ears with his hands to shut out shouts and hisses from the palestra, which in reality were no longer audible. True, he would not need to expose himself to this uproar a second time, yet if he remained in Alexandria, the witticisms, mockery and jibes of the old city, though in a gentler form, would echo hundreds of times around him. He must leave the city. He would have preferred to go on board the staunch Takea and be borne far away with his uncle and Daphne, but he was obliged to deny himself the fulfillment of this desire. He must now think solely of regaining his sight. Obedient to the oracle, he would go to the desert, where from the starving sand the radiant daylight was to rise anew for him. There he would, at any rate, be permitted to recover clearness of perception and feeling which he had lost in the delirium of the dissolute life of pleasure that he had led in the past. Pythagoras had already forbidden the folly of spoiling the present by remorse, and he, too, did not do this. It would have been repugnant to his genuinely Greek nature. Instead of looking backward with peevish regret, his purpose was to look with blithe confidence toward the future, and to do his best to render it better and more fruitful than the months of revel which lay behind him. He could no longer imagine a life worth living without Daphne, and thought that if his uncle were robbed of his wealth, he would become her support, cheered his heart. If the oracle did not fulfill its promise, he would again appeal to medical skill, and submit even to the most severe suffering which might be imposed upon him. The drive to the great harbour was soon over, but the boat which lay waiting for him had a considerable distance to traverse, for the Tikea was no longer at the landing place, but was tacking outside the pharaohs in order, if the warrant of arrest were issued, not to be stopped at the channel dominated by the lighthouse. He found the slender tree ram pervaded by a restless stir. His uncle had long been expecting him with burning impatience. He knew, through Philippus, that duty still detained the deceived artist, but he learned, at the same time, that his own imprisonment had been determined, and it would be advisable for him to leave the city behind him as quickly as possible. Yet neither Daphne nor he was willing to depart without saying farewell to Hermann. But the danger was increasing every moment, and, warm as was the parting, the last clasp of the hand and kiss swiftly followed the first words of greeting. 
so the blind artist learned only that Archias was going to the island of Lesbos, his mother's home, and that he had promised his daughter to give Erman time to recover his sight. The property bequeathed to him by Marcellus had been placed by the merchant in the royal bank, and he had also protected himself against any chance of poverty. Herman was to send news of his health to Lesbos from time to time, if a safe opportunity offered, and, when Daphne knew where he was to be found, she could let him have tithings. Of course, for the present great caution must be exercised in order not to betray the both of the fugitives. Herman, too, ought to evade pursuit of the incensed king as quickly as possible. Not only Daphne's eyes, but her father's also, overflowed with tears at this parting, and Herman perceived more plainly than ever that he was as dear to his uncle as though he were his own son. The low words which the artist exchanged with the woman whose love, even during the period of separation, would shed light and warmth upon his darkened life, were deeply impressed upon the souls of both. For the present, faithful grass was to remain in charge of his master's house in Alexandria. Leaning on his arm, the blind man left Tekea, which, as soon as both had entered the boat, was urged forward by powerful strokes of the oars. The Bithyans informed Hermon that Grishifs were waving him a farewell from the trireme, that the sails had been unfurled, and the wind was driving the swift vessel before it like a swallow. At the pharaoh's grass, reported that the royal galley was just passing them, undoubtedly in pursuit of the Tekea. But later, with the swiftest of all the Greek vessels, and they need not fear that she would be overtaken by the warship. With a sore heart and the desolate feeling of being now utterly alone, Hermann again landed and ordered that his uncle's Aramacha should convey him to the necropolis. He desired to seek peace at his mother's grave, and to take leave at his beloved tombs. Guided by the steward, he left them cheered and with fresh confidence in the future, and the faithful servant's account of the energy with which Daphne had aided the preparations for departure benefited him like a refreshing bath. When he was again at home, one visitor after another was announced, who came there from the festival in the palestra, and, in spite of his great reluctance to receive them, he denied no one admittance, but listened even to the ill-disposed and spiteful. In the battle, which he had commenced, he must not shrink from wounds, and he was struck by many poisoned shafts. But, to make amends, a clear understanding was effected between him and those whom he esteemed. The last caller left him just before midnight. Herman now made many preparations for departure. He intended to go into the desert with very little luggage, as the oracle seemed to direct. How long a time his absence would extend could not be estimated, and the many poor people whom he had fed and supported must not suffer through his departure. The arrangements required to effect this he dictated to the slave, who understood writing. He had gained in him an extremely capable servant, 
and Petran expressed his readiness to follow him into the desert. But the wry face which, sure that the blind man could not see him, he made while saying so, seemed to prove the contrary. Weary, and yet too excited to find sleep, Herman at last went to rest. If his merciless had been with him now, what would he not have to say to express his gratitude, to explain? How overjoyed he would have been at fulfillment of his wish to see him united to Daphne, at least in heart! With what fiery ardor he would have upbraided those who believed him capable of having appropriated what belonged to another! But Myrtilus was no more, and who could tell whether his body had not remained unburied, and his soul was therefore condemned to be borne restlessly between heaven and earth, like a leaf driven by the wind. Yet, if the earth covered him, where was the spot on which sacrifices could be offered to his soul, his tombstone could be anointed, and he himself remembered? Then a doubt, which had never before entered his mind, suddenly took possession of Ehrman. Since for so many months he had firmly believed his friend's work to be his own, he might also have fallen into another delusion, and Myrtilus might still dwell among the living. As he thought, the blind man, with a swift movement, sat direct upon his couch. It seemed as if a bright light blazed before his eyes in the dark room. The reasons which had led the authorities to pronounce Myrtilus dead rendered is early and probable, it is true, yet by no means proved it absolutely. He must hold fast to that. He who, ever since he returned to Alexandria from Tennis, had squandered precious time as if possessed by evil demons, would now make a better use of it. Besides, he longed to leave the capital. What? Suppose he should now, even though it were necessary to delay obeying the oracle's command, search, traverse, trail through the world in pursuit of Mercilius, even, if it must be, to the uttermost thule. But he fell back upon the couch as quickly as he had started up. Blind, blind! He groaned in dull despair. How could he, who was not able even to see his hand before his eyes, succeed in finding his friend? And yet, yet, had his mind been darkened with his eyes, that his thought came to him now for the first time, that he had not sent messengers to all quarters of the globe to find some trace of the assailants, and with them of the lost man. Perhaps it was Lecce who had him in her power, and, while he was pondering and forming plans for the best way of conduct investigations, the dimmed image of the Biamite again returned distinctly to his mind, and with it that of Arachne and the spider, into which the goddess transformed the weaver. Half overcome by sleep, he saw himself, staff in hand, led by Daphne, cross green meadows and deserts, valleys and mountains, to seek his friend. Yet, whenever he fancied he caught sight of him, and Lecce with him in the distance, the spider descended from above, and, with magical speed, wove a net which concealed both from his gaze. 
groaning and deeply disturbed, half awake, he struggled onward, always toward one goal, to find his mirthless again, when suddenly the sound of the knocker on the entrance door and the barking of Lycas, his Arabian greyhound, shook the house. Recalled to waking life, he started up and listened. Had the men who were to arrest him, or inquisitive visitors, not allowed themselves to be deterred even by the late hour? He listened angrily at old Porter, sternly accosted the late guest. But, directly after, the grey-haired native, a derision near the first cataract, burst into the strange Nubian hoods, which he lavished liberally whenever anything stirred his aged soul. The dog, which Herman had owned only a few months, continued to bark. But above his hostile buying, the blind man thought he recognized a name at whose sound blood surged hotly into his cheeks. Yet he could scarcely have heard right. Silly sprang from the couch, groped his way to the door, opened it, and entered the impluvium that adjoined his bedroom. The cool night air blew upon him from the open ceiling. A strong strout showed that the door leading from the atrium was being opened, and now a shout, half choked by weeping, greeted him. Herman, my clear, my poor beloved master! Beas, faithful Beas! fell from the blind man's lips, and when he felt the returned slave sink down before him, cover his hands with kisses, and wet it with tears, he raised him in his strong arms, clasped him in a warm embrace, kissed his cheeks, and gasped, And Myrtleus, my Myrtleus, is he alive? Yes, 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 sobbed Bias. But you, my lord, blind, blind, can it be true? When Hermes released him to inquire again about his friend, Bias stammered. He isn't faring so badly, but you, you, bereft of light and also the joy of seeing your faithful Bias again, and immortals prolong one's ears to experience such evils. Two griefs always belong to one joy, like two horses to a chariot. My wise Bias, just as you were of old, cried Urban in joyful excitement. Then he quieted the hound and ordered one of the attendants, who came hurrying in, to bring out whatever dainty viands the house contained and the jar of the best bibleless wine from the cellar. Meanwhile, he did not cease his inquiries about his friend's health, and ordered a goblet to be brought him also, that he might pledge the slave and give brief answers to his sympathizing questions about the cause of the blindness, the noble Archaeus, the gracious young mistress Daphne, the famous Philippus and his wife, the companion Priscilla, and the steward Grass. Amid all this, he resolved to free the faithful fellow, and, while Bees was eating, he could not refrain from telling him that he had found a mistress for him, that Daphne was the wife whom he had chosen, but the wedding was still a long way off. He controlled his impatience to learn the particulars concerning his friend's fate, until Bias had partially satisfied his anger. A short time ago, 
Herman would have declared it impossible that he could ever become so happy during this period of conflict and separation from the object of his love. The thought of his lost inheritance doubtless flitted through his mind, but it seemed merely like worthless dust, and certainty that Myrtleus still walked among the living filled him with unclouded happiness. Even though he could no longer see him, he might expect to hear his beloved voice again. Oh, what delight that he was permitted to have his friend once more, as well as Daphne, that he could meet him so freely and joyously and keep the laurel, which had rested with such leaden weight upon his head, for Merchless and for him alone. But where was he? What was the name of the miracle which had saved him and yet kept him away from this embrace so long? How had Myrtleus and Bias escaped the flames and death on that night of horror? A flood of questions assailed the slave before he could begin a connected account, and Herman constantly interrupted it to ask for details concerning his friend and his health at each period and on every occasion. Much surprised by his discreet manner, the artist listened to the bondman's narrative, for Dobias had formerly allowed himself to indulge in various little familiarities toward his master, he refrained from them entirely in this story, and the blind man's misfortune invested him in his eyes with a peculiar sacredness. End of Book 2, Chapter 9 Recording by Ana Simão, from Portugal